Support for this podcast comes from Microsoft Surface. Introducing Microsoft Surface Laptop Go. Available in three colors, its thin light design, built-in HD camera, and touchscreen turns any space into your workspace. More at surface.com slash laptop go. From our 901 Mission Street studios, you are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Welcome back to the big event, and welcome back to the intro, Kevin Fagan. Hey, glad to be here. Yeah, this is an interesting one. I feel like we need to set it up, because we have Jesse Thorne and Lee Thorne on. Jesse Thorne is a podcaster, broadcaster, interviewer, and you know them both. You you met Jesse when he was a little kid. Yeah, I did. I, I thought he was a uh, rambunctious kid headed for trouble, and, and he was <laughs> a, you know, trouble in a good way. Uh, but Lee, I met... Uh, through his work as a as a veteran, a military veteran, he had fought in the Vietnam War uh, and come out and become a founder of the Veterans for Peace organization uh-huh. with uh, Ron Kovic and John Kerry, and you know they they shook they shook the world up pretty good back then. And as the years went by, uh, Lee decided he wanted to to you know give back as they say and help repair the country that he had bombed the hell out of and that was Laos the uh, foremost in his mind and I got a hold of him through other vets that I'd been writing about they said this this guy Lee's really onto something he had loaded up a couple of backpacks and went to Laos to try to deliver medical supplies to a really poor village yeah. he had met uh, some Laotian people here in America who said you know this is a need and that sparked something in him. And so I wrote about him early on, and eventually I went to Laos with him and to Thailand. And we spent <laughs> a month over there, and it was a trip. So, Jesse, I'm a podcaster now. My introduction to podcasting really was through Jesse. And uh, there are a lot of podcasters who can say that. Jesse, you think of two short selling albums out of the back of his trunk, you think of punk rockers and the DIY mm-hmm. movement to get people to listen to their music. I think Jesse's going to be seen that way with podcasting. And he's an interviewer on the program Bullseye, which is on NPR. So he's certainly an impressive interviewer and, and broadcaster in his own right. So I love that you and I were friends. We've I've had you on this podcast several times. Know these two people, father and son, for two completely different things. And uh, I invited Jesse on and invited his dad to come along, invited you to come along. I didn't know how it was going to go, but uh, I I thought it was really interesting just seeing these two people and how their lives sort of interconnect, even though they're two very different people. Yeah, and I thought it made a lot of sense because Lee was very smart and very directed and very socially minded, uh, super aware. It made sense that Jesse came from him and wound up doing this interesting thing. Uh, Lee had... God, the stuff he did in Laos, he, he, he helped start a coffee operation. He helped hook up a, a village to the Internet, dug wells. He really went at it. And have, having a father like that clearly, to me, inspired Jesse to go out and do big things. So Father and Sunday, I think we should just have fathers and sons on the podcast from now on. It, <laughs> yeah. it went really well. We're your concierge for culture in the Bay Area. I'm Peter Hartlob, and this is The Big Event. Welcome to the big event. Welcome, Jesse Thorne, Lee Thorne. Thank you. And Kevin Fagan, my colleague at The Chronicle. Hey. 
This is a father-son podcast, and, and I need to do more of these. Um, Boots Riley's father is super awesome, and I didn't think mm-hmm. until later to get him on. But uh, Jesse, podcaster extraordinaire. Yeah, or at least moderate air. Yeah, sure. I, I made the comparison like Bill Walsh has his coaching tree, and you have your <laughs> podcasting tree. You've influenced a lot of people, including myself. I send little <laughs> questions, and you are really generous so thank you very much sir would you say you're george seaford or mike holmgren <laughs> i think i'm more of like bob mckittrick okay fair yeah. <laughs> i don't even think i've had my own team yet but um offensive line coach and lee welcome to the chronicle thank you i've been digging through the archives and uh reading a lot about you but you and kevin you guys went to we went to Laos in uh, mm-hmm. about 2002 or so. This is back when the Chronicle had go to Laos money. Oh, we did. Yeah, I, st- yeah. I spent a month with Lee in Laos. Yeah. It was an amazing trip. It was for me too. Yeah. So, Jesse, you didn't start in radio. You didn't start in podcasting. Were you doing other artistic things here? What was kind of your artistic awakening in the Bay Area? Well, I went to School of the Arts in San Francisco, so I I had gone to a fancy progressive private school in Hillsboro. I grew up in in the mission sort of uh my dad lived towards Bernal Heights. Um uh and I had gone to this fancy private middle school and had not graduated from it. And um <laughs> I had been socially promoted out of it uh without a diploma. And so they didn't recommend me for any of the fancy private high schools. And if you're a scholarship kid in private school, you have to stay in good standing. Um, and so I uh, I auditioned to go to School of the Arts um, back when the campus was uh, down by San Francisco State and got in as an actor. So mm-hmm. I did four years of theater at School of the Arts. And um, I don't think I ever necessarily thought that I would become an actor because I was bad at memorizing and acting. Uh, but <laughs> <laughs> I was okay at acting. I had some some acting merit. But um, it was a really special, amazing experience to go there. I mean, then as, as it may be now, it was a, there was not a lot of academics going on at the school, but to be in a place where you got like really serious pre-professional training and got to be with other kids who wanted to be there and where, you know, like being artistic and weird was expected um, and celebrated rather than weird was a really wonderful thing. So then I, I went on to UC Santa Cruz and, and ended up at the college radio station there, which is how I ended up, you know, mm. basically in in uh, podcasting. But it was definitely that experience at Soda that really, um, really set my course. And oh. I've actually, I've, I've like met like, um, you know, Margaret Cho and all, all these different um, Soda alumni over the years. Um, and it's, we always kind of share that experience of like how great it is to get to go to a, a like a, a school that's like a secret, um, <laughs> just for weirdos, mm. but is also in a lot of ways, just a regular public high school. And you you said there was like math and science there and other things. Too. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I had a teacher, I had a government teacher who used to call me professor Thorne in class because I would be like, I would like raise my hand and I would be like. They, but I, I think there's like 
three branches of the federal government, right? <laughs> are you forgetting <laughs> are you forgetting the judicial branch? And he'll be like, You're right, Professor Thorne. Yeah. And um yeah, there was it was a real mixed bag on the academic side. You good good things and bad things, and I think a relatively large number of bright bright students. But yeah, it was like four hours a day probably of of arts mm-hmm. education. And uh, it was founded by Ruth Asawa, the great San Francisco artist, and she used to be around. Like she'd just. I heard she was like gardening. I was talking to her art critic that she would just. Yeah, she would absolutely. That's what I was about to say. She she kept up the, uh, she kept up the gardens at the school. The school had been like uh, I I had heard. I think this is true, but at the time I had heard that the campus had been a an elementary school for kids with special needs. So all of the. All of the water fountains were like a foot and a half off the ground mm-hmm. and all of the toilets. <laughs> and the heat didn't work, but they couldn't fix it because there was asbestos. So if they would disturb the asbestos if they fixed the heat. And, you know, it's cold down there by San Francisco State. And it was, you know, our theater was a third of like a of a basketball court that they'd walled in and built and... These days they're at the campus of McAteer and they have they have some really nice facilities, but it was definitely, you know, it was a, it was an also ran. Weren't you in a rock band too? No, I my brother my brother my youngest mm-hmm. brother Brendan was it was and is a a very accomplished musician, mm-hmm. and he actually went to school of the arts many years later. He's fourteen years younger than me, and he was in the he was in the vocal department at school of the arts. How did Doubted Lee get such talented uh, artistic kids? What happened? I know, without any talent himself. <laughs> exactly. Well, I got hit in the head. Oh, there yeah. you go. <laughs> it worked. So I, I see elements of improv and comedy in your in your podcasts. Um, Bullseyes and Interview podcast, Jordan, Jesse Go, comedy podcast. Uh, you're the bailiff on Judge John Hodgman. But how were you as an actor? I mean, what, what were you like in high school? You, you made a little self-deprecating remark, but I'm wondering. I mean, I think to some extent, I don't know if this is what Phil Rayher, the he just just retired, was the boss of the theater department at, at School of the Arts. Um, I don't know if this is what he would say, perhaps because he has probably revised my talent upward, uh, given that I have a small public profile now. But um, I think basically, like, if you were a boy who could do your lines with the right cadence uh, and you were 13 and admitted that you wanted to go to theater high school, you could get into school of the arts. <laughs> mm, yeah. It was the cut. The competition was profoundly cutthroat for uh, the girls at that age. <laughs> um, and there are actually one of my classmates, Aya Cash is a very successful actress. She's on, you're the worst on FX. Um, like a lot of talent there. Um, but yeah, I was in uh, I was in the Three Penny Opera. Nice. Uh, one time on uh, Jordan Jesse Go, John Ross Bowie, who's a comic actor, who's on um, what's the show with the Mini Driver and um, uh, so anyway, he's on network television. I ne- yeah, star of a hit network television show, but um, uh, he was making fun of me for having gone to an arts high school, and he was like. Come on, what did what 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 musical were you in in high school? The Three Penny Opera, and I was like, yes, I was literally in the Three Penny <laughs> Opera. Also, Mother Courage and her children, um, and we did. I mean, there was like a musical production. I was in Little Shop of Horrors. That was probably the closest to my actual skills. But like, we did Commedia dell'arte. We did oh. Afro Haitian dance. 
Um, That's serious. Yeah, we did Shakespeare. You know, every year a kid from Soda would be in the National Shakespeare Competition winning. Um, and But for me, uh, I think I could always fake being an actor as then as now by knowing how to read my line immediately. Uh, but accessing emotional depth was a challenge for me then, again, <laughs> then as now. Um, so yeah, so like Little Shop, it was like, you know, I was the dentist and stuff and I can't really sing, but uh, that was as close as I ever got to uh, until, of course, I became a professional actor years <laughs> later with my one acting credit on IMDb. What, what is that? I was, on, I was on Comedy Bang Bang on IMC one time. Oh, okay. I, played a, I played a smug prick. Uh, and, well, and it's kind of typecast, but it's okay. Well, the dentist is a psycho. That's the one that Steve Martin played in the movie, isn't Absolutely, it? Absolutely, yeah. That's pretty hardcore. I yeah. thought I might have missed you and sorry to bother you because there were a lot of little cameos that were like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's Kamau. What's up, Mal. Boots? How come you didn't put me? You, we got Nato Green in there. You got Kamau in there. Yeah, um, yeah I did um, I did improv in, in college and uh, eventually sketch comedy. Actually, the San Francisco sketch comedy group Casper Hauser, who are real brilliant geniuses, we saw them in an 826 benefit, like the first or second year that 826 opened. We were maybe juniors in college. And we thought, this is the most amazing thing. What are these people doing? Why are these people not on television? Like, how could anyone? It turns out that they're all like doctors and lawyers and stuff. And that's why they don't have a TV show. They, it would be a pay cut. But, <laughs> um, but they came down to our show and we were like playing bits that we'd made for our college radio show. Mm-hmm. And they, one of them said, oh, this is really good. So you guys do sketch comedy? And my co-host at the time, Jordan, uh, said, who's now does Jordan, does he go with me? He was like, yeah, we do. <laughs> and they were like, well, we could get you a gig in San Francisco if you want. And Jordan was like, great. <laughs> so then they left and we were like, uh, I guess we have a sketch comedy group now. <laughs> we better write some sketches. And we did, uh, yeah, we did. We toured with sketch comedy for a few years. What was the name? I'm sorry. The it was name called Prank the Dean. Prank the Dean. And did you do an early sketch fest? Like we did. Yeah. I mean, I think we did sketch fest five or four or five um, and I worked for Sketchfest for a little while after I finished college. Um, yeah, I've been in, I think I've been in every Sketchfest for like the last 15 years. I should mention that's <laughs> why you're here. Yeah. Your annual uh, Swallows to Capistrano. You, yeah, you come exactly. Sketchfest. <laughs> so just to complete that, so you, you're in Santa Cruz, you're working on radio. How does that turn into podcasting? And basically, I had a family friend. Um, who was the kind of guy who read Wired magazine in the early to mid 90s and you know he was just that kind of guy who paid attention was knew what cyberpunk was and that kind of thing and when I graduated from college I was driving back I was living at my mom's house in San Francisco borrowing her car once a week to drive to Santa Cruz to do my college radio show which was very sad mm-hmm. and um I had a I had a, this family friend. He emailed me. He said, "There's this new thing called podcasting. You should look into it. Don't you do radio?" And I figured at the time I was like, "Well, if we do a prank the dean show for a hundred people, I'm happy. If we can get a hundred people to listen to it by podcast. Then <laughs> I guess it's worth the, a few hours of work." And um, that kind of that was 2004, and I've you know my my career has grown 
with and alongside podcasting ever since. I mean, it was probably 10 years before that was my job. Um, but it it's a little little by little I've accreted uh, a mortgage. Well, no wow. one would make fun of you now. You own Maximum Fun, and you yeah. have a hit after hit, Bubble, and yeah. uh, was this year executive producer on that? Yeah, yeah. My, Jordan, actually, my, my best buddy from college, who I still do a podcast with, created that. He's a television comedy writer, and we're working on it for TV, and... Uh, it's fantastic. Yeah. Um, I listen to four regularly, four of of your Max Fun podcasts, and that's that's the fourth. Uh, just yeah. added that one. It's fantastic. Now, no one would make fun of you. No one would make fun of podcasting. What about back then? Were, were people trying to warn you away from this? Or? I think people just people were just baffled. They were like, "Why? Why would you want that? Why would you do that?" And it's funny, like, I sometimes think, well, maybe if I was five years younger, yeah. I might be a filmmaker now, because I'm just old enough at 37 that when I was in my, like, creative growth years as a, like, 18 to 24-year-old, a camera was a little too expensive for me to buy. Yeah. But recording equipment is actually pretty cheap. <laughs> yeah. So um, it was, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it was, you know, a little bit like uh, Grandmaster Flash inventing scratching because all he had was his parents' turntable, you know? Um, and so it was, it, was more, it, it was more just like trying to convince anybody that they should give me any kind of job when it seemed like I was more interested in driving to Santa Cruz to do my college radio <laughs> shows. <laughs> and certainly nobody at, you know, KZSE in Santa Cruz where we did the show is a wonderful community radio station that's really vibrant. But like the hit shows on that station were not necessarily my show. It was like the reggae show and the folk music show, just as you would expect. Oh, yeah. yeah, Santa Cruz. You know? It skews a little older, too. I've listened to it yeah. while passing through Aptus or Calistoga. Yeah, I mean. so, you know, you get a nice show hosted by a, a white guy with dreadlocks talking in patois. <laughs> <laughs> or a folk show hosted by a lady who has a, a dog with a handkerchief uh, yeah. in there with her. <laughs> I, I ask you about the early days, because I co-founded the first blog at the Chronicle. And I remember every Great one of blog. you guys, mm. Kevin, who, um, The Poop, my parenting blog, mm -hmm. was a spinoff. I remember every single person who came up to me and made fun of me about it. Well, oh, I yeah, mean, I course. never, I could never get a job in legacy media. I mean, that's ultimately like, my entire career is defined by my inability to get a job. Yeah. Like, I really, I applied for so many jobs in radio of so many kinds and so many jobs in television of so many kinds. And just couldn't get anywhere because I think people, you know, some combination of, oh, I was the news director of the college radio station in Santa Cruz is not that impressive. But also I think maybe people kind of sniffed out that like I was already doing a thing and that was where my heart was. Um, so, yeah, like I never <laughs> – I still have never had like a boss in radio, which – I feel like I'm really missing a lot. Like I, I did an entire show called The Turnaround about interviewing yeah. that I did basically because I was like, I have literally never had uh, someone to tell me how to do my job better. And I was like really worried that I had like, that I was basically like a, 
a folk artist who like veered off into my own insane world of how to do it. And there was like a, a good way to do it that I could have just known and everything would be way easier. <laughs> yeah. You sound like a lot of comedians I know. You know? <laughs> and, and the whole podcasting thing reminds me of the 30s with radio. Yeah, I mean, I think my grandparents, you know, thought, wow, what an amazing thing. It's like that on steroids. Yeah, I mean, I think that the um, the thing about podcasting that's really wonderful is the radio industry in the United States had a business structure that led to an almost total lack of innovation or and certainly Mm. of anything that I would think is interesting. Like there's. Public radio was the only place that could, um, and especially big public radio institutions, was the only place that could get basically enough people together to work on something that you could do anything more ambitious than a call-in talk show, you know, than like Dr. Laura or something like that. And even those Dr. Laura's, they didn't even invent that kind of radio syndication um, after the breakup of the big radio networks until, you know, the late 80s, early 90s. So there was just no comedy at all on the radio. There's, you know, right. all these things. And podcasting has become a way for, like, many of my good friends are stand-up comics. And it's a way for them to have a relationship with an audience that doesn't involve them having to, like, physically be in the same room as the audience, which is a tough way to build an audience, you know? it's a, it takes That's slow and hard. And so you can... They have similar skill sets and... You have a you can you know you can really benefit from from the kind of connection you get from podcasting because it's so personal and feels like a friend. The trick is how do you make money out of it? For there's a lot of innovators. Well, I didn't for a long time. That was <laughs> my that was my system for the first uh, yeah. eight years. I mean, we always I think because my dad my dad was an organizer my whole childhood, um, and one of the things he did was fundraising consulting. Um, and I think I just kind of grew up around that. And he was starting the Jai Foundation when I was uh, in my late teens, which is how you got to know him. Okay? Right. Yeah. And I always, I always had the, ex- I, I, I always had the expectation that it was good and okay for what I was doing to be supported by the audience directly. Um, and so I kind of built it, built Maximum Fun, my company, like it was a public radio station. And that really helped us weather the, that and just the kind of gen, my general fear of risk slash DIY ethic, um, uh, you know, helped us avoid the boom and bust cycle of, you know, online media because, once you build those, once you, if, if your goal is to build the kind of relationship with your audience that would lead them to give you money that they totally don't have to give you, <laughs> um, then you have something that is, that, that is like strong and lasting. And, you know, I just, we just built it every year a little more, a little more, a little more. And one day it was like, you know what? My, we moved to Los Angeles so my wife could go to law school. It was like, I'm not going to get a job. We're just going to I'm just going to do this. And it was like three years of making twelve thousand dollars a year and four years, maybe. And then it was like, oh, like we're up to fifty thousand dollars a year. Maybe we could hire someone for a few hours a week. You know, oh, we're up to one hundred thousand dollars a year. And now we're, you know, I we're trying to buy a building and we have 15 employees and 30 shows. And and it's all 
you know, we make money from other sources as well, but it really is still is about a community of people who care about what we do and just, you know, send us five bucks a month or whatever. I, I tell people that I've, I've, I've learned more cool things from Jesse Thorne. Um, and I, I learn new <laughs> things accidentally often. And uh, it's a great show that way. The other thing I think about Bullseye is you rep the bay like heavily <laughs> and continue to <laughs> to the point of anger by non-bay area listeners yeah it's almost well, aggressively yeah and uh I, I wanted to ask you about that you you live in los angeles but you still really connect with the bay area yeah i mean i think like. i i um i was asking my therapist about this not that long <laughs> Always ago a good idea. <laughs> and because i had a, i have a very i feel like i have a very unusually emotional relationship with i mean everyone has an emotional relationship with the place they came from yeah. but i it's one that i've maintained in my life i think and almost like tended to and part of it is the narcissism of everyone in san francisco which is like oh we live in the greatest city in the world right that you only get perspective on when you leave not that's not to say that i disagree yeah, <laughs> i right. still kind of think it is but um uh, but part of it, I think, is just like um, I, you know, my my folks were divorced when I was very young, and um, uh, both of my parents were are, are great parents. Um, but I think I, I had a I had a like a as my mom's only child and my dad's only child until I I was like eight. Um, uh, I. I had a kind of, and as a child of divorce, I had kind of like an independent life by the time I was 12. You know, like I, I went to school on the bus by myself starting in second grade because both of my parents, neither of my parents made a lot of money and they had to work and they would take me to the bus stop and everything. But I was on the 49 Van Ness mission. It stopped right in front of my school, but like, uh, you know, like that was, they, they couldn't not work the two hours a day that it would take to take to ride on the bus with me um and uh so i think i always had you know i always had kind of a relationship with the neighborhood that i grew up in that in some ways was um like a like a third parent and a very reliable um part of my life i mean i've heard my dad talk about um uh in his own childhood in in Kansas City and Glendale uh that church was that kind of place for him like an out of out other than the house like reliable place and i think i felt that way about like walking to the salvation army on valencia street and it always it kind of defined who i was and like how i thought about the world and I, in doing Bullseye, I've talked to so many people about, like, why did you become an artist? And it's so common to hear the story of someone wanting to escape this stultifying situation in which they grew up. And for me, it I, I always felt the opposite. Like, I had to figure out who I was in the context of a place and a world, you know, in in a in an arts high school and in a you know special middle school <laughs> for uh, smart boys. Can and, I just say the name because we both went oh, to the same yeah, school? Nueva, yeah, Nueva. Yeah, Nueva. There's like 12 people at the school. Yeah, wow. We happen to be one of them. They, you go on hikes. 
I had a, a math school. I had a math teacher. There were like four math geniuses in my class, and there was a math teacher, and they just gave me a book, and I could read it or not. Yeah. Um, oh, I love it. Was, it was different. I had but, very mi- I had very mixed I had a very mixed experience there, but um, uh, yeah. but like I, I, I. I loved where I was from. Like I never had any, the first ambivalent feelings I remember having about where I was from were, um, you know, when uh, I, I grew up sort of, as I said, in the sort of mission Neu Valley, towards Noy Valley and Bernal Heights when I was in my teens. And um, I think when the first web 1.0 wave came in, I, I remember feeling a little scared and ambivalent about the neighborhood, but, besides that never and like i've talked actually you've had kamal bell on the show mm-hmm. and i've known kamal bell since i was in college and he used to do this bit in fact that i saw him do at that 826 benefit all those years ago at the at the magic theater where he had he was probably i guess he must have been two years from chicago in san francisco and and he had this bit where he ate his first san francisco burrito mm-hmm. and he looks at it and he goes You've been talking a lot of shit, burrito. <laughs> <laughs> and I, he came on my show and he was talking about how when he when he stopped doing observational humor and started doing political humor, he felt like he was really being himself. And I was like, that's really funny, Kamal, because when I saw you doing observational humor about burritos, I felt like you were talking about my identity. <laughs> it's like, like, in the, like in the same way that, that Kamau's uh, identity is built on his mom going from black bookstore to black bookstore selling books <laughs> of inspirational quotes that she self-published like my identity is built on it's it's <laughs> it's it's are great yeah you know what strikes me about this is because because i spent a lot of time with with your dad before we went to laos and after laos and you kids you and your brother i'd say lee how are those kids and uh, you know oh they do music and they do acting and uh it, it, he he let you be who you were and 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 the way that that you have built your own life reminds me so much of your dad because mm-hmm. Lee, you you really built your own thing mm-hmm. and took it far and took it hard mm-hmm. in a very difficult uh, uh, difficult field of, of helping Laotian yeah. villages. Well, I want I want to talk about that and let's get the background because I did a very deep dive on Lee Thorne in the last couple of days and a fascinating fascinating background with a lot of twists and turns. Yeah. Kevin, I feel like you're the Lee Thorne historian here though and we have lee thorne here a so. living history I, lee thorne is dear in my heart because i mm. i what i saw and experienced with with you in, in laos and, and uh, uh really moved me and, and i've well, know, let's, been in let's this start with time. vietnam in mm. vietnam uh navy mm-hmm. navy yeah. yeah and uh you served and uh what did you do in the navy i was i worked on a on the uh, a carrier Airplane carrier, you know? mm-hmm. and uh, I was uh, do you loaded bombs? Yeah, well, loaded, loaded bombs and, and ran the projector as well. That's the, oh, <laughs> yeah. the projector was better. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but not that great because the projector also showed the the tail films from the from right. the planes. Yeah. But he volunteered at the very beginning of the war, um, and ended up the carrier ended up involved in the secret wars in Southeast Asia, particularly in Laos. Right. Um, and uh, served in, what, 61 and 62? Does that sound right? I think yeah. that's right. Okay. Yeah. Right around that. And, and, and it, it, you were like Ron Kovic. 
and that you were you volunteered patriotically. Mm-hmm. You were, you know, a good American boy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the end of the war, you were horrified mm-hmm. by by what you had done. Mm-hmm. And then all these years later, you you wanted to do reparations. Mm-hmm. So yeah. he immediately. I mean, the, when he came back, he went to Berkeley and um, was immediately involved in organizing. And that's actually some of the... I think we have actually. Yeah, this one the, is from this 67 is a when my dad was a junior. And they're talking about at Berkeley, they're going to have a meeting to decide, uh, th- a meeting to talk about the role of the university in a democratic society with Earl <laughs> Warren and John Kenneth Galbraith. <laughs> oh, wow. And my dad organized a group uh, to protest uh, and demand that the faculty who are involved in this meeting stay afterwards to work with the students to address the real problems of the community. (laughs) And my dad says, although we don't want to interrupt their program, explained Lee Thorne, a junior in political science and spokesman for the group, we're going to carry signs of protest in order to point out the real problems of the university. Thorne said his group, the Committee for Student Participation, would chant its demand for the meeting and boo faculty members who leave the meeting. <laughs> Pretty forceful. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's really it's really amazing. I mean they they were or they were organizing. Um. Uh, they were organizing vets right away. Mm-hmm. Um, and getting that at that point, getting just connecting with the. Uh, with Sometimes the other the people, airport. yeah. Oh yeah? yeah, yeah. At the airport, you said. Sometimes at, at yeah. the airport because um, people come and go at different times. So <clears throat> I had been there a little early, earlier than most of the people I knew, but which was probably one of the reasons I got involved in uh, Vets for Peace. But. Actually, we had a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> you you go and and eventually organizing even uh, even active active service members, right? Leafleting and oh, yeah. giving people instructions on how to go AWOL and stuff like well, that. Not that or not. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure you told me that one time. Yeah, well, I don't think that I don't think the, I don't think there's any MPs yeah. here. Right. <laughs> We have a fantastic photo of you, Lee, oh. leaning out of uh, the GI Coffee House. It looks like like the back of a van, maybe. Um, oh, Oakland's, GI, yeah. Oakland's Pentagon first in the Bay Area. Uh, this yeah. is a what is this? A coffee house for yeah. who? For it's a, it was a GI Coffee House. It's um, you know that at that time there was a lot of guys getting out, and uh, so you know I like coffee. but i mean it was like the the issue the main thing was like you couldn't go to the vfw hall especially if you were anti-war but you still wanted to have a place for fellowship and so on and so forth for vets who had had this experience and shared this experience just like any vet does yeah it was ptsd and you know i still got it it's and it was, it's very, it's, uh, there's a lot of it around. <laughs> and at that time, nobody was saying that. And um, we were, you know, John Kerry was involved in that too. Mm-hmm. John was an officer, but I, w- I was just a, another guy. And, you know, the, it, it was, 
you know, you can tell it was a tough time. Yeah. Kevin and Lee, how did you guys meet? You called me because uh, you and your friend were going to load up a couple of backpacks and go to a village mm-hmm. in Laos with some medical supplies. Uh-huh. And I thought, well, isn't that weird? Uh, that's, that's different. That's strange. And, and so I wrote it from here. And you guys went over, did your thing, and, uh, uh, and then came back. And I wrote another article, I believe. And then you got determined to go do more. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had uh, Lee Felsenstein invent a pedal-powered computer. Yeah, uh, you, yeah. you, on a bicycle, and you wow. said, "I'm going to go take this wacky bicycle over there to the village in Laos." And uh, Vinch, it wasn't Vinchon; it was it was quite a few miles outside mm-hmm. the main yeah. the main town. And uh, and I got the editor to clear me to go. And then after you know getting to, to go deeper with you, mm-hmm. you were doing coffee. You knew special forces who were clearing bomb fields. Mm-hmm. Uh, I it was like a, 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 a play field for me. I did mm-hmm. I think nine stories out of there with you, and and then oh. cut loose with the bomb guys. I, for a I while. counted twenty seven. No, Kevin, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah, so, so basically, like my my dad had worked my dad worked with VVW Vietnam Veterans Against mm. the War and VFP Vets for Peace. Yeah. Uh, one of which was the East Coast, one of which was the West Coast, and they merged. One of them was founded by John Kerry on the East Coast. And um, had worked with them, I mean, into my childhood. I was born in 1981. So he was still, we were still going to protests of, you know, the, uh, uh, you know, invasions of in Central America and so on and so forth when I was a little kid. But had also in the 80s worked a lot with Ed Roberts, who had been his, uh, friend and contemporary at Berkeley and ended up becoming a uh, disability the, rights. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The the leader of the independent living movement. Mm-hmm. And Wonderful there, there's, leader. Yeah, and there's mm-hmm. now a uh, there's a state holiday na- named after him. Mm-hmm. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, That's so great. Ed was Ed was my when I was a kid, Ed was my dad's best friend and they worked together a lot. And um she, Ed so when I was a teenager in the mid 90s um, my dad had gone to had gotten his disability, um, which was a really big deal in our family um, yeah. for his PTSD, and had gone to business school, and uh, uh, with using VA benefits, and had um, met this woman named Boontan, who is a Lao American, and her family were refugees from uh, the same parts of Laos that my father's carrier bombed Mm -hmm. and um they worked together to do this first mission with my dad's childhood best friend um you know they 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 just my dad had had not been back since then and and wanted to go and in so doing he'd had two priorities one was to do some reconciliation work and one was to see orangutans Yeah, <laughs> he was really excited about the orangutans, seeing the orangutans in the wild. Did you get to see any orangutans? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so. <laughs> so, so he and his childhood best friend went went to Laos this first time and just brought as much medical supplies, basically, as they could carry. And a couple of backpacks. That suddenly became that. That ended up becoming well. What if we could get a pallet out there? You know, and mm-hmm. from there, my dad's kind of community organizing mind locked on. And he started doing basically community organizing in Laos. So there were in, internally displaced populations in Laos. There are many parts of Laos that are still uninhabitable, un, uninhabitable because of the um, bombs. bombs, the unexploded oh, yeah. ordnance. 
And so there are the, all these internally displaced populations. And, and my dad just went to the village where Buntan's family lived and basically started with community organizing. What can we do? How can we make your lives better through organizing? You dug a well. I remember yeah. looking. You got yeah. a well dug. And you went back with the bicycle. And yeah. it was a pretty rough place. I mean, we took, when we were riding up there, there was a bus ahead of us uh, several miles. And uh, a Hmong guerrilla band slaughtered everyone on the bus. We missed, we missed it by, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. Oh. It was pretty intense. It wasn't just, you know, drop in and go to the local Target store. Mm-hmm. It, was, it, was, it was something. And, 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 and you made that happen. And there was a whole band of us that went over there. And you had organizers on the ground in Laos. Mm-hmm. It was very impressive. And the kind, the kind of the fundamental thing about what he was doing, um, and I, I worked for him a little bit when I was out of college, which was not a good idea. Sorry, yeah. Dad. <laughs> I love you very much. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, the fundamental thing that he was doing was he had been doing work around the idea of reconciliation and had put on a big event in Fort Mason when I was like maybe 12 or 13 around that theme. And his his goal was to basically participate in kind of active service that gave the people who were being served the the power. Mm. Because USAID and Canadian aid groups and all these people who were doing you know charity work in Laos, which is a very poor country, we're doing charity work, which is in, relatively ineffective. It's an ineffective use of resources because the people don't have ownership over. These are yeah. things that we've that have been figured out somewhat since, but were pretty new ideas at the time. the The idea at the time was, well, yeah, you you raise a hundred thousand dollars and you build a hospital, but the question is, if it doesn't belong to the community and the community isn't sufficiently integrated and they don't have the skills, then the hospital just you know, after two years, the sure. roof caves in and everybody is just like, remember when they built that weird hospital? That's right. You got to sustain it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Talk about the, the coffee field. The coffee operation, I thought, was very impressive. Yeah. So there was there was mm. two. There was basically two in Laos specifically. There was two big projects. One was, as you said, my dad's friend from high school, Lee Felsenstein, who invented <laughs> the first portable computer, the, the Osborne, Osborne One. Computer. Yeah, the Osborne <laughs> One, which my dad had one of. I'm going to say until he got the he got his PTSD certification, I think he still had the, he's still writing in WordStar on the <laughs> That's right. on the four inch screen of the Osborne One, which is like the size of a suitcase. Uh-huh. Um, but uh, yeah, so it started with. They wanted communications. That was their goal. So it was to build a system that gave them community-owned ability to communicate uh, so that they could arrange reparation, uh, arrange um, uh, payments from uh, people in the Lao diaspora, which is a big source of income, um, but was very difficult to arrange for people who didn't live in the city. So they have Lao people living in whatever Minnesota or in right. other parts of mm-hmm. Asia, um, and they needed to send money home. So they needed a way to talk to people besides a motorcycle comes through once a week. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and to know what their, most importantly, financially, to know what their crops were worth. Yeah, because they it, were getting ripped off. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So yeah. some they would sell, they, 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 they almost everybody yeah. was a <laughs> subsistence farmer, so they were selling their a little bit of extra to the people who came through. Um, but the people who came through knew what the market price was in Vientiane, and they didn't. 
So they needed the their the information imbalance was leading the farmers who are growing the crops, the poorest people, to lose. And if they know what the market price is in Vientiane, they can say, well, just give me 90% of the market price or 80% of the market price. If they don't, then they just have to take what's offered to them. That's right. Mm-hmm. No. And we, so it was a computer yeah. that had a battery that was powered by a stationary bicycle that was that used Wi-Fi to, uh, and this was when Wi-Fi was felt like a brand new technology, Absolutely. directional Wi-Fi to point at the nearest uh Telecom, which was at a sort of regional hospital, what was it like twenty miles? Or I read the right. story. They strapped it on a tree. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Actually, Lee, you and I walked up that freaking hill, a, a long hill with a with a soldier who mm-hmm. had an AK over his shoulder and was wearing flip flops like the kind you wear in a in a shower, <laughs> yeah. and and he was faster and better than us. And this was a yeah. rough hill. We climbed to the top and watched a couple of guys bang these Wi-Fi cars on a on the top of a bamboo tree. Uh, and you were so happy to see that I could it, it, uh-huh. it, tell me about why why you cared so much because I, that came through for me in every step of the way on that trip. Well, I feel like crying. Um, <clears throat> was a I had an opportunity to to make amends, mm-hmm. and the. I knew a little bit about organizing, so I understood that, you know, to spread it and, and also follow it and also get in front of it. And I had been trained by QR Hand and another and a couple of other guys. Um, QR Hand was a is it was the best community organizer I knew in the world and have ever seen. Mm. And. He, he trained me before I went to Vietnam, and uh, you were saying it was a way to it was a way to make amends. Yeah, um, I had been uh, on a carrier, a USS Ranger. Um, you know, I was against the war, but you know, I was on that carrier, and so I didn't do anything that was going to get me thrown off the bus. But the, it was. Mm. It got to you. Yeah. It got to you, and it got under your skin. And Buntan got under your skin, and she made you want to act, didn't it? Mm-hmm. If you sp- spend much time in a village, or at least what from my experience was, that you know you get make friends. Yeah. Mm. And you know, even though we come from very different cultures, um, that was irrelevant. The fact is, we could feel like we had friends, you know, to each other. The thing that I, the thing that I remember really vividly, because this was happening when I was like fifteen, sixteen, is well, there's two things. One is that my dad's, when my dad started doing this, his health changed dramatically, and it didn't. It was no, not a the. You know, there's no cure for PTSD, mm-hmm. and my dad is, you know, as long as I have known him, he's that has been a huge part 100%. of his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, hundred <laughs> yeah. percent crazy and proud. <laughs> yeah, and clear about it. Yeah, and but um, but you know, 
I remember that after his first trip, he told me that was the first time that he had slept through the night without medication. Mm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, so that's one thing that I remember that it it really it was not a cure for the things that were difficult for him and for us, but um, changed changed him. It gave him a some of what he had been hoping to achieve through his work, I think, for himself. You know, his goals were external, but, you know, he wanted something for himself too. And um, also, Buntan, who he founded it with, and her family became, who were, you know, much of this village, became my dad's family mm-hmm. and yeah. um i remember how deeply he felt that when i was a teenager that you know buntan was his sister and her family was his family and that wasn't anything i had ever heard my dad say and you know uh like me i mean you know my dad maybe uh somewhat emotionally uh uh, alienated through family trauma. <laughs> um, and uh, I think that to be in this place where um, he knew he was helping and he was helping people that, and and having this relationship with them that didn't or couldn't have with his own immediate family. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and... Um, that that that's the emotional piece that I remember that was different from even you know as much as he loved and loves Ed who was his best friend and loved that work like that or loved the all the other organizing that I saw him do as a kid like the thing that I remember most about Jai is that it felt like he was he was building a, a, a he was doing service to his his family there for his family there that was my dad's i mean i remember as a teenager him one day uh i think maybe we were trying to decide where i should go to college or what i wanted to do what kind of maybe i was just out of college and i needed to get a, i needed to figure out what i wanted to do for a job or something and my dad was like, my dad got out his fat markers and his poster board. He was like, okay, let's mind map this. <laughs> he community organized it. Yeah, he community organized it. Um, and I think that was like, that really is, you know, I didn't understand. I don't think I understood the the depth of difference in my dad's approach to his work relative to the other folks who were on the ground from outside of Laos until I worked for my dad after college a little bit and went and worked in Laos for a few weeks and met some uh, met some government aid guys from uh, you know so-called Western countries oh, yeah. and they were nice folks who were really doing their best. It wasn't that um, you know nobody goes into international development to make people's lives worse, but. Um, it was obvious that it, it had not occurred to them that they didn't have the answer. Yeah. Did it 
doing three penny opera and improv, it must not have felt like you were following in his footsteps. But were you absorbing the lessons that uh, that that he was? That yeah, he was? I mean, I think like talking about you know talking about all these people that I interview who are artists and went into art because they felt like they had to make because they felt like they had to break out of something it was unquestioned by both of my parents who had each paid tremendous costs to um have their own lives separate from their families and their families expectations of what their lives would be um you know as as older baby boomers or just before baby boomers both born during world war 2 and you know my my mom's parents didn't speak to her when she went to college and um you know my my dad uh you know my dad had his own problems with his parents and everybody came to san francisco like anyone did not not necessarily because they were hippies but because it was a place where you could make your own life and so my life was always predicated on the expectation that whatever i did with my life was okay. It also, I've also always felt a very, in becoming a business person, which is not what I expected. You know, like we're talking about <laughs> me as a, like my, my I pay my mortgage by running a company, you know? <laughs> and, um, and it, I feel very, I, I both have never felt like my, parents wanted me to do anything other than the things I really cared about in the world. And I never felt like, I never felt like I was anything less than responsible for being moral in doing so. And maybe my dad would have liked for me to, you know, continue die when he retired if I had not had other things going on. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think that in a weird way, like it's, I mean, it seems like a big claim for me to make about my dumb dick joke comedy podcast network, but like it is absolutely inspired by my dad's life and career in that I see my work as a way to directly affect people's lives and make them better. And that I see, I feel a very deep central responsibility not to make people's lives worse through my work. And I also see much of what I do as a a kind of organizing. Mm. Um, And, you know, that, I mean, we, we do, you know, things that you would say, oh, that's a, sure, that's a direct social good, whatever, you know, like we, we raised a hundred grand this year for the National Immigrants Law Center. But, but that's not what I mean. I mean, like, I think that like the things that I understand about how you connect people to a cause and, move them towards that goal um, are things that I learned from my dad. And that's the basis of everything that I've ever done. You know, that's the reason that that's the reason that people will send us five bucks a month is because they believe in what we believe in and they want to make it be in the world. And the reason that we're able to do it is because we have that kind of breadth that my dad was talking about building in a village in Laos we had that connection to this group of, you know, I, I don't have a, to make one ad buying guy happy, 
I have to make a difference in the life of 10,000 or 25,000 people who are the people who, you know, pay to keep our lights on. Well, oh, go ahead, Kevin. Oh, it, it just occurred because of what had happened, Lee, because of the, the, the trauma you mm-hmm. have experienced through your life and then the, the, the work that you did. You, you got social justice baked into your soul, Jesse. It's, it <laughs> yeah, it my, seems like that. My, ther- my therapist was uh, – I think my therapist probably thinks thinks of it as a negative <laughs> for my mental health <laughs> that I like feel like I I want to I bear this as a sort of what I want to have in all my life when maybe I should just be like oh look I got rich making people laugh about dicks. I have to say, dick dick jokes is a very maybe forty percent of your shows. Okay, thank are, you. <laughs> thank you. It really depends. On, it really depends on the program. There's not a lot of dick jokes. Laser on dong. Side. I think I can get a laser, laser dong T-shirt dong, yeah. through. Yeah. What, com- yeah. what comedian laser doesn't like a dick joke? Is. Well, I I have to say that um, you know I've listened to your work for years, Jesse, and been influenced by it, and I've read about you, Lee, and and heard about you through Kevin, and meeting you guys, I can see where the pieces fit together. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate you both coming in, and uh, Lee, you're always welcome here. If you want to, if it'll bring you happiness, you want to come by here with me and Kevin, and we'll dig through these archives and find more Lee Thorne in there. I got to find that photo of you at this GI coffee shop. That's <laughs> going to be my new... Uh, my new William Shatner killer whale. Or Peter, what if what if just my stepmother Bernie just sends him here to live? Okay? <laughs> yeah. We could do a cot back Bernie, there. Bernie, this the Spitfire Irish gal. You yeah. got lucky on that one. Yeah. yeah. There was a guy here, Jesse, um, who worked here, who uh, Shawshank Redemption style took one musical instrument, chord, amp down here at a time set up a band and recorded an entire album down here without anybody at the Chronicle knowing. <laughs> Holy cow. That's why I set up this podcast studio down here because at the time no one wanted me to do it and I just went down and practiced. And So um, anyway, uh, you're always welcome here, Lee, and I hope Thank you'll you. come back and, and dig around these archives with me and Kevin sometime because it's history. And uh, and Jesse, you're, you're obviously always welcome here too. We didn't even get to the 49er photos. So um, I hope you'll come back. You don't have to come on my podcast, but if you just want to look around and yeah, uh, next next time I'm back, we're just gonna go to the I section of the photo morgue and look for It's It pictures. It's It oh, pictures. We, we both own an It's It T-shirt. I've heard him talk Dude, about it on his LA I have podcast. A, I have a uh, It's It T-shirt and an It's It sweatshirt. <laughs> oh, I want one. Oh. Uh, anyway. If anyone is listening from It's It, my only dream in life is to be is to be a brand ambassador for It's It. Please, yes, I'll do anything. All right. Well, we're going to close with It's It. That'll be what we pick up with next time. Thank you both for coming. I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you so much, Peter. Thank you, Kevin. Thanks a lot. This has been really fun. All right. Thanks, guys. You are listening to the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you to our guests, Jesse Thorne, Lee Thorne, and Kevin Fagan. This episode was produced by me, Peter Hartlob. Senior producer is King Kaufman. Executive producer is Tim O'Rourke. And our editor-in-chief is Audrey Cooper. Our music is The Tide Will Rise by the Sunset Shipwrecks off their album Community. Read our columns and subscribe to The Chronicle at www.sfchronicle.com. 
Chronicle Podcasts are on Apple Podcasts and other streaming services. Listen at www.sfchronicle.com slash podcasts with an S. Thank you.